This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving a thousand miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts, Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. Today's episode is also brought to you by Skillful. Skillful runs online immersive programs that helps launch and accelerate careers in business roles in tech. Join one of Skillful's upcoming cohorts to learn what you need to know and from who you need to know. Skillful recently released their core sprint for January. Their core sprint is great for business generalists, anyone looking to get into biz ops and build their SQL and problem solving skills. They also have two additional sprints that will be dropping soon. Their strategic finance sprint for finance professionals looking to learn how to level up their experience for a strategic finance role and their product strategy sprint for professionals who currently work cross-functionally with a product team or if you want to understand how product strategy and business strategy intersect. No prior product experience is required. So early bird applications for their core sprint, that's the one geared towards business generalists, are now open. Use the exclusive code Early bird 2021 if you apply before December 1st. Head to joinskillful.com. Also, it's located in the show notes before December 1st for access to an exclusive early bird pricing. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Brett Thomas, co-founder of Kavoo Venture Partners. Kavoo Venture Partners builds brands for a healthier world. Some of their investments include Whoop, Poppy, and Once Upon a Farm. We chat about his transition from hedge funds and public markets to early stage companies, how his introduction to helping companies was getting them on billboards and the impact of that channel, as well as how he founded Kavoo and their philosophy on how they think about brand. Without further ado, here's Brett. Brett, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for joining me on the show. I am very well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So want to start from the very beginning, Brett. What was your initial attraction to consumer brands? You know, my initial attraction to consumer brands um, happened when I was a little kid. I used to go on adventures with my grandfather uh, who uh, called himself a bathtub chemist. He was an entrepreneur and uh, created an auto-polished company. And I used to go to Kmart's and Target's with him on the weekends, and we'd spend hours in those stores, walking up and down an aisle, 
um, looking at different products, different packaging, him telling me how every invention comes from someone's problem. And it's funny how those, and, and even how packaging has to be beautiful to draw in the consumer. And you know, I was a seven, six, eight, nine-year-old boy um, at that time. And it's incredible how, I guess, osmosis or however it works, but it goes deep into the, uh, into the mind and the soul in, in some ways. And uh, that was where kind of my passion for consumer brands, I think, initially started, if I go way back. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I think when you go down the grocery store, I think that it's, it's easy to forget that all of these brands are someone's ideas. And all of these brands are their own companies. And so I guess learning that and kind of realizing that from a very, very young age and just trying to understand, okay, what, what is this packaging differentiating on? That's really cool. That's really cool. So how did you end up to, to come in a career in finance? You know, I think like most uh, kids growing up and, and going to college, uh, I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I think the most practical major, and I literally checked it in the box, was finance. My understanding was, okay, I'll learn basic fundamental skills that, you know, arguably probably should have been taught in high school as we talk about modernizing curriculum and what, what children and students should learn. For me, though, um, I thought that was the most practical thing I can study. I couldn't say I was passionate about it, and I was kind of jealous of kids, uh, not jealous, but really admired other kind of friends and students at the time who kind of knew what they wanted to be in college. I thought that was fascinating. But, you know, everyone's path is different. I mean, I didn't start Kabu until I was 35. And so that was kind of the, the basic, simple answer. Also, I figured, you know, finance was allowed to make money. Um, and money gives you optionality and options in life. And it wasn't the right motivation. But that was my thinking when I was in college. And so when I graduated college, I took a job in a hedge fund. I'd be lying to you if I said I knew exactly what a hedge fund was at the time. But that was the, the, the buzz in the early, I'm dating myself now, but in the early 2000s when I was coming out of college. And, you know, it's similar to how consulting was in the 90s when a lot of people wanted to go work at the big consulting firms. I think hedge funds had that allure uh, and were the hot topic uh, when I was coming out of college. And so I was very fortunate. I, I got a job at a, a firm called Scout Capital. Uh, Scout uh, starred with $5 million. Um, the founders, Adam Weiss and James Crichton, uh, were brilliant individuals. And, and, you know, they grew that to $9 billion uh, before they shut down the firm in, uh, I think, 2013, 2014. My journey started there. I was the, the sixth employee. It was probably the best training I could have ever asked for. Um, it was hard. It was intense. It's everything that you read about. But it's like, it's one of those things where at the time, I don't think I fully appreciated it. And I think... You know, it's like that high school teacher, your high school history teacher who was extra hard on you because they saw potential and maybe you didn't appreciate it. But when you go back to your high school reunion 10, 15 years later, you're like, oh, wow, thank you for, for pushing me and getting the most out of me. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was a great training ground, but it wasn't my passion. You know, you, you had a scorecard every day and you either made money or lost money. And for me, you know, right before my 30th birthday, you know, drawing back on more advice from my grandfather, who was obviously a very big part of, an influential part of my life. You know, he always told me, if your job is not your passion, by the time you turn 30, you got to quit your job and go follow your passion. And that was advice, again, it's funny. I remember where I was when I got it, we were mushroom picking in, in Lodi, Ohio, which is outside of Cleveland, in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, those, those lessons and, you know, you know, my attention span as a, as a 10 or 11-year-old boy was probably pretty short. And, but I, I remember that, and he would always reiterate that. Make your job your passion 
and you'll be truly happy in life. And so I was about to turn 30. I knew picking stocks and investing stocks and trading was not necessarily my passion. It was a great way to make money, but that, didn't, that doesn't drive happiness uh, or fulfillment. And so literally, uh, right before my 30th birthday, I went in and, and uh, gave my notice. I forgot about the two-week notice part, so I actually left a week after my 30th birthday, but close enough. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I did know that I, was, I wanted to be something in consumer, uh, in consumer brands. I wanted to build something tangible. And I was always, um, always admired people who built something from the ground up tangible. And even when you, this was in, when I was living in New York City at the time, and I live in Los Angeles today. It just even in New York City, as you're walking down the streets and you see every skyscraper or every you know, store, owner, business owner, shop, um, there's something tangible. That was kind of where I started to focus on consumer. It wasn't until about a year later where I had my kind of second inflection point, I feel, in my, my career and in life when I became a father for the first time. Um, and that was obviously, as, as all parents uh, know, it's the most amazing, most rewarding thing to become a parent. And one of the things I learned and was kind of an aha moment for me was when we started feeding our son and watching my wife, and I give my wife Hillary a lot of credit because how she looked at the back of each label in terms of what ingredients we were giving to our child, making our own food uh, when she'd come home from work after a long day, and I'm sure it's the last thing she felt like doing. Um, And then when we were bathing and and putting lotions and shampoos, looking and making sure um, the ingredient list was proper and, and not anything that you wouldn't want on your body or in your body. And so that was my aha moment of, okay, there's a different way of, of parenting. That was the millennial mom. And, you know, when I grew up in the Midwest and in, in Ohio, you know, my parents didn't look at the packaging and, and labels. Um, that was, you know, it was, I was eating mac and cheese and, and chips and, and Coke. And it wasn't because they didn't care about me or my nutrition. We didn't know. And um, it was cheap, it was accessible, it was affordable, and it tasted pretty good. So that was a huge secular shift. And at this time, call it 2010, uh, you start to see SoulCycle and group fitness and CrossFit starting to really get big. And that was my aha moment of kind of saying, okay, this health and wellness is a secular trend now and it's starting to form, but eventually it's going to become a way of life as the younger generations start to uh, age up and you know the baby boomers kind of age out more and more focus on health and living a lifestyle that is making better health choices is going to be prevalent and if you look at today i mean that was a thesis our thesis at, at kavu um was to and is to democratize healthy living for all humans and i should say pets because we also invest in pets um and pets are now part of the family obviously but you know that was something that we came up with a long long time ago um and now i mean COVID accelerated significantly but I really think it's starting to be a way of life, not just on the coast, but um, across the entire United States. No, I really appreciate you saying all that. I mean, it reminds me too, just of myself, you grew up on mac and cheese. I feel like I, I grew up on tortellini, um, just frozen tortellini like all the time. So totally hear you on that. Why, when you quit your job when you were 29 uh, and formally left when you were 30, why, why didn't you think that, hey, I should maybe start a company myself? and focus on one product instead of becoming an investor and maybe doing the transition from uh, trading to you know, early stage investing? It never actually really crossed my mind at that time. And you know, my grandfather had started a company. You know, from my standpoint, I think it was an easier transition having um, done investing. But you know, what I don't really talk about a lot is you know, from uh, 2009 until I started Kavu and, uh, you know, call it mid to late 2015, that was my part of my training ground. 
you know, I spent almost six years meeting people, studying a category in industry, networking, meeting the who's who and, and the people who had had success in that industry before. And the way I looked at Kavu was, and the way we feel about Kavu and, and the way we want to build Kavu, and it's not something that we just want to be around for a few years. We want it to be an institution that can be around for, you know, way past when I'm here, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years down the road. We look at Kavu as a brand. And so I do feel like we did start a brand. But granted, it's, it's, it's finance and it's investing and it's venture. But we are very different in how we do things. You know, we've started brands within Kavu before. But um, Waterloo being one of them, uh, which is a sparkling water. And, and, you know, we've been very instrumental early in a brand called Poppy. And we're probably going to start another one here soon. You know, that's something that it just it felt like an easier transition going from, you know, what I was doing in a hedge fund to then trying to understand a new category, new industry and how it operates and works. No, totally. I appreciate that. How do you recommend for any aspiring investors that are listening when you took those six years and you were meeting with entrepreneurs, you were studying the category. How did you approach studying like a new emerging category? It's trying to be a sponge. And again, I think um, it's like, you know, homework you got in school. And if it was a topic you weren't interested in, it was a drag, right? Maybe you'd, you'd be reading the words, but you wouldn't really be understanding them or just kind of getting through it page by page and flipping through and maybe not even doing the homework, right? For when you're passionate about something and you have a genuine interest and it moves you and motivates you, I think reading and meeting as many people and talking to as many people as humanly possible is the way to go. You know, everyone kind of, there's a lot of people out there who want to feel like they're stuck in their jobs or their careers and they want to make that shift and go follow their passion. And, and, and the problem is, where do you start? And I always believe in the, you just, you just get going, right? Go ask someone to go to coffee. Um, go, you know, send an email, a cold email to see if someone would give you five minutes to talk on the phone. You'd be surprised at how many people are, are open, and I think it's putting out that good energy in terms of um, helping new people coming in. You know, it's like I get uh, college seniors and juniors write me all the time asking about you know consumer and BC, and I try to respond to as many of them as possible because I know when I was a student that was very valuable to me to get a response and to get a ten minute phone call with someone who can maybe give me some advice. Um, but I think you just got to get started. It's objects in motion, kind of stay in motion. And so I was a big believer in that. And I went and talked to everybody. And I also went, you know, I, I was flying around the country all on my own dime to go to these conventions. You know, I would show up at, at Expo West and I'd walk these floors and I have no idea where to start. But you just start and you start having conversations and talking to people and you can't be afraid to put yourself out there. And, uh, and I think that's my biggest advice is just getting started, whether it's reading a book, looking at Twitter, whatever it might be, just start getting information and meeting people and networking. And I think that's everything else will then kind of, all the different doors will open. One of my first investments I ever made was in a brand called Suja in consumer. And it was a, a, a cold pressed juice out of San Diego. And they were using this new technology called HPP, uh, high pressure uh, processing. And it, it was very new to the market and it had a very short shelf life. Um, and so just hearing a term like that, having no idea what it means or understanding it, and then being able to go talk to people, talk to the company, talk to, um, other people who have helped build these machines and the science behind it and how it can help extend shelf life um, and how it's better than uh, heat in or using pressure in order to keep more nutrients. So you just have to be a sponge. And again, you know, I think a lot of people who are in banking, um, and I don't want to generalize necessarily, but my guess would be a lot of people who are in some of these industries, they probably don't reach their full potential sometimes. 
because they're not really passionate about it, right? It's kind of, hey, you go to school, you go to a good school, you should then go into a couple years of banking, and then you go to a private equity job is, is a path for a lot of um, at least, you know, individuals who are studying finance. And, you know, I would say they probably are there probably because you're making a living and an earning. I don't, I'd be curious to see how many of those people are actually passionate about, you know, how many actually love banking. And I'm sure there's quite a few that do, but I, I think it's that, that passion, if I can reiterate anything, a passion is everything. And if you're not passionate about um, the industry you're in or the career you're in, it's going to be harder, I think, to find success. Also, like during that period between Scout and Kavu, I, I presume you were angel investing. Was it tough, that transition of going from a hedge fund where you had kind of all the numbers and you're crunching all the numbers where you're then investing in brands and there really aren't that many numbers, right? It's, it's kind of, it's really kind of up in the air in a lot of the way. And you kind of have to believe uh, uh, the story of the brand a lot more. Was that a tough transition for you? Yes, but one of the best pieces of advice uh, I got early on um, was always follow your gut. So again, I always talk about passion. It's following your gut. And it's like, uh, it's like in school when whatever your initial reaction was, if you bubbled in A, go with A. Don't, if you erase it and change your mind, and typically it was more times or not, your initial instinct was probably right. And then you second guess yourself and you go, no, it's not A, it's C. And then you erase it and filled in and it was actually A all along. And so it was really trust your gut. And I, I think, you know, even today, I, I always trust my gut. And when I talk about we're very gut investors, and you have to be a little bit when you're investing in a new category that's not really formed yet, right? There, there's, there's some research, um, and the reason it's hard and you have to trust your gut is because there's not going to be the answer you can uncover. It's really going to have to go on some data, but it's going to be limited. And then just your instinct and gut. And what I think it is is it's pattern recognition, you know, I've been making consumer investments now for almost 12 years. You know, obviously public market investments since, you know, 2003, 2004. And I think that pattern recognition becomes real. But earlier on, you know, you have to experiment. You have to learn. The only way you learn is you don't learn when you, make, when you do things right. You only learn when you make mistakes and you fail. And, you know, I was using very small checks early on where obviously, you know, I, I knew that if I was going to lose this money, I'd still be okay. But that was the best learning ground and training ground. And, you know, uh, you never stop learning. You have to have that learner's mindset, that continuous learning. And I think that was what was really instrumental when I was at Scout. And, and Adam and James always talked about continuous learning. Um, and they definitely had a passion for investing in public markets. And you can tell. They, they, they lived and breathed it. And I think the same thing is true. You always have to be learning. And I can honestly say today, you know, when I started, and I didn't want to take outside money or other people's money until I felt comfortable that I could be a good steward of their capital. And today, you know, six years later, I think I'm an even better judge of brands and investor than I was then. And I think five, 10 years from now, I will be even better. And a part of that is just pattern recognition. You're going to make mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from them. And, and failing is the quickest way to learn. But fail fast, right? Um, that's also another piece of you know, advice that's always given, but it's so true. How did Kavu come together? What was the founding story there? Yeah, so as I was saying, I was out there learning um, the industry. I think I was, it was accelerated a little bit because um, at the time, uh, my father-in-law uh, owned a company called Van Wagner. Uh, and Van Wagner was a billboard company in, in the United States with, with billboards in, in New York and L.A. and Miami and in Chicago and other markets. And I had actually went to him uh, in 2009, 2010, 
and asked them, again, we were coming off the, the financial crisis, and so uh, inventory you know, levels were a little higher than usual. Our occupancy levels were a little lower than usual uh, in a market like New York. And I asked him, well, what do you do with an empty billboard? And he said, listen, nothing. I won't sell a $300,000 billboard in Times Square for 50000 because my customer will never come back and pay anywhere near the, the rate card price you know, uh, going f- forward. And so you know, I said, let's do a science experiment. Let's take uh, an empty billboard and let's go find a consumer brand. And listen, I was a, he was obviously a big believer in, in billboards. I became a huge believer in billboards and seeing the power of them and how they build brands. And uh, so we did a science experiment where we exchanged billboards. So whenever we had an empty copy, we put a billboard up of the brand. And in return, we got equity. And the idea is that if we got good at this, we can potentially get a return or an ROI on a on a and an empty billboard. One of our first brands we did was a, a vodka company. And, you know, we did a deal with them. And the brand went from 10,000 cases to uh, 180,000 cases in about 18 months. And it was just in two markets, New York and Miami, and two salespeople. And that was my aha moment of, okay, I've got actually a value add. Not everyone can go to a brand and say, I can do this, this you know, special deal with you. And so that was kind of the, the premise of, how do I have an edge? How do I, you know, because again, anyone can go write a check. You know, money has become a commodity, right? There's no differentiation. It's commoditized. It's the table stakes. But how can you actually bring value to a business where they want you to, to be along for the ride? And what happened was my, one of my first brands I did was Suja, and that really did well. I, I did a, a deal with them and the billboards they used in, in Manhattan as they launched in Whole Foods on the East Coast. And it was pretty successful. And um, then I saw more and more firms were, were calling me, asking me to come and be a part of their deals. Um, again, I think they thought, oh, he can add value. He doesn't write a big check. Uh, and he's you know, not a competitor or threatening. Having that um, kind of edge, right, my own value add, uh, I went to go seek out the difference makers in the space. And one of those individuals was uh, a guy named Rohan Oza. Uh, Rohan, um, I was a, a huge fan of his work. He was uh, the CMO of Vitamin Water and was responsible and influential in the, the marketing of, of vitamin water, but also of, of doing the 50 cent campaign and the 50 cent equity deal, which people talk about to this day is kind of really the inflection point when celebrities and athletes, um, instead of taking cash, they started taking more um, equity instead uh, in the brand. And he also did the Jennifer Aniston deal uh, with Smart Water and then became kind of a mini uh, uh, venture entrepreneur, as he calls it, where he'd helped other brands like Vita Coco and uh, Pop Chips and Buy. And so we met and we hit it off. This is probably 2012. And we started uh, investing together in a bunch of companies. You know, I pitched him on the idea of, you know, building a, a different firm that was based more on brand building and value add than it was actually uh, financial analysis or um, financial engineering of returns. And, you know, I, I, that was kind of the premise. And CAVU stands for Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited. It's a pilot term. It's the perfect flying conditions. And, you know, it, it's kind of what we aspire to for our brands, right? The journey of an entrepreneur is rocky. You're going to have high highs and low lows. Uh, and if we can do anything to make that journey and that flight a little smoother, um, one, from the mistakes we've made and educating them where they can avoid some of these landmines, but also, um, more importantly, also from the, the value-add side where we can actually help their brand and we like to say at Kavu, we want to make the news and not just report it. As you invest more um, and have, and gain more experience, you become a better investor, right? You were you, you consider yourself a better investor than you were maybe five years ago. In ten years, you're better. Is it tough though? Since, for example, all of 
the trends right now are, you know, the in terms of who brands are trying to appeal to our Gen Z, you know, in 10, 20 years, that will be, you know, a Gen Alpha. Is it tough when you're not in that generation to also maybe not understand what their needs actually are? Like, is um, I, I, I imagine with more experience comes better investment, but is it also kind of hard to kind of keep up with trends? Yes, unfortunately, uh, we all age and where we still think we're young, unfortunately, you know, it's funny when I drive my kids to school, I've never heard of half of the music they want to listen to. So it's, it's, oh my gosh, I'm turning into my parents um, when I was listening to their, their music in the car. Um, yeah, it is, it is tough, but I think as long as you realize and, and, and realistic on what stage of life you're at and where you are along that consumer spectrum, you have to be willing to, uh, to, to say, I don't, there's things I don't know. And it's okay to say, I don't know. And, and at Kavu, I love when people raise their hand and says, I have no idea, but let's go figure it out. Right. Versus nodding your head or, or going along. And so we, you know, we have a lot of young people that work with us, uh, in the, in, in Kavu. So obviously their opinions, their perspectives, what's going on. Uh, we are not shy to, to ask people. And we also, it's just, it's talking to people. Right. And it's seeing what's out there. You know, when I was in New York City, I used to look in trash cans um, and not to go recycle, but to literally see what brands do I see in those trash cans. Um, and I'm, my eyes are still wide open. And it's, it's almost a disease and a sickness where I look at everyone's shoes. I look at, you know, what apparel they're wearing. I look to see if they have a watch. Um, and if it is, you know, are they wearing a Garmin? Are they wearing a Polar? Are they wearing a Whoop? Are they wearing an aura ring? And I'm looking at I'm looking at everyone from younger people to older people to really understand trends. And so yes, it is difficult, but you just have to be aware and look. And I think one of the advantages um, I've always had is I, I've always been a very aware uh, individual, were curious, and I was very always always had curiosity in, in things that I, I loved. Um, and so the fact that I'm following my passion, and if I'm sitting at a restaurant and I'm looking around uh, or people watching. I'm not looking at what they look like. I'm looking at actually what they're drinking, what they're eating, uh, or what they're wearing, or what devices they have on their on their arms or their fingers or whatever. And so that helps a lot. Um, understanding just because I wear a whoop, does that mean that you know other people will wear one? And it's interesting. It started as like the hardcore fitness enthusiasts, the triathletes. I think this, and I think this shift and that we're making is that more everyday people from just people who just want to go for walks, I think more and more of them will want this information. Because it's once you have that data, and not only just the data real time, but then you have a history and a record of 30, 60, 90, 180 days, a year, two, three of data. So if you do have a health issue, having that data and seeing what your normal body, like look at respiratory rate. A lot of people during COVID saw a spike in their respiratory rate who had whoops, and they realized, oh my gosh, there's something off here because I'm usually in this range and I jumped up to this range. They went and got tested and, and Will, the founder, can, and has spoken about it and we'll talk about it more probably, but a lot of people realized they had COVID just from seeing, you know, when they woke up in the morning and looked at their data, right? And I think there's going to be more of that uh, in time. Yeah, I mean, really great point. Really great point. It reminds me as well about how had the founder of Aura Ring on 
and how Aura was. Uh, people were checking their Aura rings to see if there was any change in terms of in terms of how they were, um, and and how that could be related to seeing if they got the flu or or if they had COVID. So I mean, I think all of this maybe preventative health that's kind of coming into into play with tracking. I think that it's all pretty amazing. I want to know as well, and maybe on the food and beverage side and beauty personal care side, how do you separate the product from the brand? Um, meaning, or or the packaging rather. Like, would you invest in a company that had an amazing product, but maybe you really weren't sold on the branding and the packaging of the company? 100%. That actually is the best type of company to find. Because if you can find that Ferrari engine, which would be a good product inside that wrapper, and they don't have Ferrari packaging, I go back to one bar. I tasted a one bar for the first time. And actually, Rohan and I were right with each other, and we both tried at the same time. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he said, this is the buy of candy bars. 20 grams of protein, one gram of sugar, tastes great. And that was essentially buy slogan, right? Five grams, five calories, one gram of sugar, tastes great, full of flavor. Um, and but the packaging was horrendous, and it's not a it's not a knock. It was working despite itself, and the brand went from you know like three million sales, I think, to like thirty five in one year. It was incredible, and so that was our oh wow, we can actually really work with this. And again, we had a conversation with the founder. This is what we'd want to do. This is you know this is what the changes we'd make, and then we went and changed that packaging. We did that internally, um, and so the one bar that you see out there with the white package now. Um, with the food very, it looks appetizing on it. You know, as we launched into all the other channels, um, that was our new packaging. Um, and so we felt we get, we had a Ferrari on the inside, but we then now have a Ferrari on the outside. And again, uh, unfortunately, people judge a book by its cover. And I think if you have beautiful packaging or, or differentiated packaging that stands out on a crowded aisle, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drive, it's going to drive trial. And if you have a great product on the inside, it will drive consumption. If you have nice packaging and the, the product inside isn't great, well, then you're, gonna have, you're not going to have any velocity or repeat business. So that is something very easily fixed. The harder part, I think, for us, the easier part is the branding, the marketing, activating that. The harder part is how do you get that engine inside to be you know, Ferrari-like? I love that line, packaging drives trial but the actual product itself, that drives repeat. That actually drives you know, customer love. I also wanted to know too, since you got your start maybe in, um, or in terms of like your value add with billboards and offline marketing, when does it make sense for a company to explore offline marketing versus you know growth marketing? Because now, I mean, online, I think that we talk a bit about growth marketing quite a bit. We talked actually quite a bit about growth marketing on the show and about how you know saturated it can be with Facebook and, and Google. Uh, but we'd love to like have your your thoughts about is is there a uh, a much bigger maybe land grab opportunity here to actually go and market offline if you're a young brand. Listen, I think the last several years, um, it was very, not easy, but the barriers to entry were such that uh, you could start a brand from your basement. You could have an online business, right? There was all the, the back end with Shopify and fulfillment. And really it was Facebook ads and whatever targeting you could do, uh, Instagram. But the problem is, and this year was a perfect example, one, I think the big, big companies have now started to really lever into that and, and they figured out how to do that. And so that's driven the costs up because uh, they can pay more, right? Um, they have larger marketing budgets. 
Um, and again, that was what it used to be in the old days where traditional Madison Avenue media was TV and radio and not all, and those were the barriers to entry originally because in that, like, unless you had multi-million dollar marketing budgets, it was very hard to displace the incumbents. And with the invention of social media and, and digital ads and, and things of that nature, um, the bills barriers to entry got broken down where you don't need a multi-million dollar Madison Avenue marketing budget in order to, you know, get out to the consumer. So on one end, it, that was helpful. It's made it more fragmented. So I think it's going to be hard. I don't think there'll ever be another brand like Coca-Cola, which does so much revenue off of one product, right? You think about the billions of dollars that selling a, a, a red can uh, does annually. I think it's going to be very hard because of those barriers broken down where multiple brands can, can compete. But this year, especially with the iOS challenges, I think a lot of young brands are struggling with how do you pay such a high cost of acquisition? Um, and those costs have gone extremely high where it's, it's, you, you can't have a, a, a healthy business profile by continuing to market that way. It's just too expensive. And so I do think you know, offline um, suffered a little bit um, over the few years where digital took all the rage. And I think it's going to be an, just like I think now as a brand you're starting, you have to be omnichannel, meaning you have to be able to sell on your own website or Amazon, but also in retail. Uh, I think you have to be omnichannel marketing, both online and offline. And I think um, you know what what that pie should look like in terms of offline online. I think will constantly be shifting. But you know, I look at on offline marketing today, and billboards are, are a perfect example. Billboard inventory is at like one of the highest um, levels it's been. I mean, occupancy. I mean, it's hard to get you know billboards now. Because I think COVID affected it for a while where big companies pulled back their marketing spends. And then when the world opened up again, you know, they went out with a big push because they had tons of money they saved from that marketing. But I do think brands are going to have to be more willing to do a combination of offline and online. You have to be nimble. You have to be willing to be adept to, to switch. But I think both are going to have a healthy balance. And I think it's going to go back and forth a little bit. And I do, listen, I'm, I'm obviously a big believer in billboards. And I don't want to make this whole uh, podcast about billboards. But until they invent teleportation, billboards are a great intrusive way to build your brand, appear larger than you are while you are doing your own digital marketing and, and geotargeting your consumers and you have that data. It's actually even more powerful, right? If you have data that a lot of your customers are in a certain part of the country, it's very easy then to go buy billboards um, and, and around those areas to even drive further expansion and, and get your AOVs even higher. That's a really that's a really good point, especially I think then on the one that, that when you have a billboard, it makes you seem um, a lot bigger than maybe you are. Um, and that's uh, that's a really cool thing. So I know we talked to here about about different marketing channels. I want to also talk about sales channels too. I've had on Ernesto Schmidt, who's the founder, one of the founders of the Craftery, and he said that he thinks that DNVBs are heading to retail way too early. They should they, they should hold out and wait a lot longer. And then I had on the other spectrum, Andy Dunn, the founder of Bonobos, say actually starting on the channel from the beginning is a great way to go. I'd love to know when you think is the right time for a brand to go into retail and and how you think about it at Ecovoo. You know, I think they're both right. I don't think there's a hard set in stone when this should happen. I think one of the advantages of online and selling products online, especially your own website, you know, back in the old days, you kind of had to go... I think this is going to work. And then you, you sell into retail and then it either worked or it sat there and collected dust. It's really cool. So Vital Proteins is a perfect example. You can launch and innovate new SKUs 
and you have an audience that you can blast with an email saying this is our new launch of whatever SKU, you can see what the, what the response is what, and get feedback on it. And so then when you go to retail and you have the data, and so I have a perfect example. We went to a retailer with, with Vital and the buyer wanted to take four SKUs and they weren't the best selling SKUs of Vital. They were actually like average SKUs and, and, and not the best. But again, you're getting into this new retail, you're excited. Okay, sure, the buyer knows their, their customer and their store better than anyone. Well, but we had all this data saying, no, 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 these aren't the SKUs. So when it first went into that retailer, it struggled for the first six months. The, the velocities were low. And then had a meeting with the buyer and they said, okay, let's switch out and put the, and they put in the, the top four SKUs. Guess what? It went like this. So I think the advantage of being able to test, to trial, to innovate online, see what works, what doesn't work. And if you have turns, if you turn online, you're probably going to turn it retail is kind of a, a fundamental. And I actually talked to someone the other day who actually said that to me, and I, and I agree with it. it for the most part, not a, not a hard rule, but for the most part, if you have success online, you probably will have success in retail. And so if I were starting a brand today, and it depends on the category, I think you've got to start off omni-channel. I'd probably start it with out of the gate a year, maybe 12, 18 months of online learning, making your mistakes online because it was a lot easier to fix than if you go into nationwide, Whole Foods, uh, all doors, and then like you realize there's some type of, oh my gosh, like I need to do a recall or there's something, like this product isn't working on shelf. So um, I, I think the consumer being omni-channel, you know, when you go into retail and you see a bunch of the same products and you're the consumer, you don't know which one to pick, what do you do? You probably pick up your phone and you probably go to Amazon and you look to see reviews and ratings. And that helps drive trial, again, as your new consumer, by looking at what the internet tells you in terms of feedback and, and reviews. And so I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think you have to be omni-channel. The question is, I think each brand is different on timing, but I think it's such an advantage to be able to learn, know who you are and what, what the right SKUs are when you go to retail. But I do also believe you got to go to retail. You, I don't think you can wait years and years and years. I think that shelf space is valuable. I think going and claiming, hey, we are, we are going to own these big retailers early and be one of the first movers um, once you have that data is just as important. So I think you've got to be learn on DTC um, online, but then be able to make that shift into retail probably a lot sooner than brands um, did in the old days. You know, I, like the bonoboses of the world and before they start opening up their stores, I think what we learned from a lot of those lessons is go to retail a little sooner than, than they have been going. Got it. Got it. So, okay, that's helpful. So we start online, DNVB, of course, this is all dependent. There's no uh, silver bullets here, but uh, start off maybe D to C online only, and then eventually expand into retail since you obviously know then you have a much better idea in terms of which products, which SKUs are actually performing. You might also have a much better, you also in terms of pitching it to uh, retailers, knowing what exactly markets are, are, are your top markets, which can only help you in terms of um, in terms of actually getting a buyer. So yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I remember talking to John Sebastiani who said that um, when he turned off uh, DMVBs, what's difficult, what, what he's finding is that you're then not actually priced for wholesale. And, and that's actually can be quite a different thing to kind of overcome. And so, um, I mean, all this stuff is in terms of pricing can be a bit tricky to dive in on. So what is one thing you would change about venture capital? That's a great question. You know, I would like to, it's interesting. I think venture capital within consumer, I feel like it's more sharp elbowed 
then if you look at tech investing, it's almost more clubby. Everyone wants to bring everyone into these deals, um, maybe because the size of the check are that much larger, maybe the risk is larger because you know the speed of the innovation cycle in tech. But you do see a lot more clubby type of deals where there's multiple firms going into one deal. Um, and now that could be a good thing because you have plenty of partners to keep scaling. Um, you get plenty of advice. You have a lot of smart people who can bring a ton of value. The, the more, the better, right? But you also don't want too many cooks in the kitchen, so you got to balance that. What I found, I think, in consumer uh, is because the check sizes tend to be a little bit smaller, you tend to have, and again, from portfolio construction, right, it, it's, it's very hard to have infinite amount of brands because you just you don't have the bandwidth. You can't give you can't give what you need to give to every brand if you have 10,000 companies. But I would like to see a little bit more of maybe group-led rounds. Um, that was the biggest shock for me coming into kind of consumer VC was how sharp elbow, where it was kind of, oh, this person just did that round, so we, you can never do the next round because they can write bigger checks and more and more. I think the entrepreneur benefits. And, you know, if there's someone that can add value to a business – and the entrepreneur says, hey, I'd really like to let them in, involve in the round, even if we're leading the round. Yes, we want to write bigger check sizes too and be able to put more in, especially in a, a brand we believe in and we see the path. But we think having a little bit smaller piece of that pie by bringing in, now it can't just be a check for the sake of a check, but if it's actually value add and someone that can actually help with one of our weaknesses or can be complementary to the company or to the founder in terms of skill sets, we want them in all day long because that just helps give you an extra insurance policy and helps increases the odds and chances of success. So um, that's been the biggest kind of, I was surprised by coming into the industry, but it's funny because coming from a hedge fund background, there that doesn't exist. It's, you know, that's more you know, cutthroat and winner take all. But it's interesting the disparity you see between tech and consumer a little bit. It's usually one firm leads the whole thing. Maybe there's some small people who come in, right? Smaller checks that come in. We're in tech. And I think it's probably because the rounds are a lot larger and maybe a little bit more riskier at times. You have multiple, multiple firms uh, that are in those deals. Um, and they work well together. No, totally. And I think also in tech, you might have a different firm lead, you know, the next round. Right. It's usually not if you have the seed, probably it's going to be a different firm that, that leads the A. We're, at, we're in consumer. That's not as much the case because and, I'll, and also it's tricky because, you know, making the money work because the outcomes typically in consumer just aren't as large as yes. as tech. So it's hard to find a snowflake like return probably in consumer um, or, or Coinbase. Right. Um, now, let me change because the convergence of tech and consumer, or, and I think more tech is going to be, I mean, there may be a day, uh, a year down the road where you take a pill and that's nutrition for the day, right? So I think more and more technology is coming to consumer. Um, so I think that could change. But again, as a founder and, and the flip side, and I know I'm talking on both sides of my mouth now, but there is something about having that continuity of, hey, I have a partner that I love, that's working great. They provide all the value in the world. Why do I want to go disrupt that and bring in, you know, another group when you have a really good working chemistry and good board dynamics and, and all those things that make a healthy business? Um, so uh, and, and, and tech seems to figure it out. Right. So, um, you know, I've had I've had founders say, well, why would I want anyone else if I if, if I love you guys? Why would I upset that and change that dynamic? Right. And conversely, if it's a bad situation you know, uh, where it's not going well, or maybe there's, it's, it's, there's multiple firms in there and they don't have the same vision, you know, that can also detract from a company. So 
What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I would say it's funny, and I've done a lot of reading recently, um, and it's hard to pinpoint one. Um, I think professionally, you know, I'd love to say the, you know, the, the, the Steve Jobs book, but um, obviously that did. But I think more recently was the uh, Stephen Schwartzman book uh, from a professional standpoint. And I think one of the biggest takeaways I saw was that, you know, there's always that expression, time kills deals, and you've got to move you've got to move with, a, with, an, with an intensity, but also a purpose. And, you know, reading the story about how they pushed to get their, their fund closed, uh, the last anchor investor in, um, and they did on that Friday. And then that next Monday was, you know, um, Black October, the big stock market crash. And he said, it's quite frankly, if we had waited and didn't move with speed and tenacity to get that closed, he doesn't know if Blackstone would be what it is today because they wouldn't have gotten that. Because the whole market, right? That was a whole, you know, market crash. He doesn't think that, you know, at least he thought, like, he doesn't know if Blackstone would be what it is today. And you just think about that, you know, and, oh, no problem. We'll, we'll handle it tomorrow. Um, and it's just, you, those are things out of your control. You never know. Um, and that was really profound in, on, on me in terms of that whole book, but especially that, that part of that, part of his life where, if they had waited an extra day, he may not be who he is today, and Blackstone may not have been, ever become what they've become today. And I just find that just fascinating and striking, just that you can never delay things when you have an opportunity to, to move with a, a quicker, swifter pace. That's amazing. I appreciate the reason why always, if you can do something today, do it today. Don't wait until tomorrow. What tomorrow will bring. And, that, and that's true in all things, right? That, that's true in, in relationships and calling your parents and telling them you love them like, or, or calling that friend that you haven't spoken to in a while because uh, you never know. And um, I think that that is not just in business, but it's in, 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 in personal life as well. Totally, totally. Well, you are very original, Brett. You're the first person to bring up this book um, on the podcast. So excited to add it to our reading list and, uh, put, put your name next to it. My final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I've said it today. I, I'll multiple times follow your passion. So just don't go start a company because, Oh, that's the cool thing to do. I don't need to go to college. I'll, I'll go start a company and be an entrepreneur. You have to be passionate about being an entrepreneur. It is not a hobby. You have to be maniacal about it. You have to be all in. You have to live, breathe, and eat it. Um, and so if you have that, then I think the biggest piece of advice I'd give to founders are don't get too, too high when things go well. You should absolutely celebrate the small wins because you have to, right? Um, but also, I think more importantly, don't get too low when things go wrong. Things are going to go wrong left, right, and center all the time. And being able to look at situations and take a deep breath and say, okay, we got this. Let's figure this out. It's probably the biggest piece of advice I can give to entrepreneurs. Um, it sounds so simple, but people generally are too hard on themselves when things go wrong. And that just creates uh, inaction in my opinion, because you, you start to um, create this anxiety within about a problem and it becomes a lot larger the harder you take it, I feel like. And I feel like that prevents and, and causes prevents you from taking action sooner versus have a pity party for a few hours, fine, right? Wake up the next day and go figure it out. And, you know, I failed many times in life. And yes, I felt sorry for myself uh, when it happened or I made a mistake. I got up the next day and said, okay, I'm gonna go figure this out. 
And that is the biggest piece of advice I can give to any founder. It is going to be hard. It is tough. Um, it's not just about making money at the end of the big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's that journey. So while you're on that journey, which is going to be the highs and the lows, just appreciate every moment of that journey. Because, you know, when you sell your company, if you talk to founders and you've had founders on your, your podcast, um, when they sell the company, it's nice, great. They've got a nice big pot of money. But at the end of the day, that doesn't drive happiness. Um, and what they miss, and talking to a lot of our founders who've sold their companies um, and other founders, is that they miss that journey. Um, just uh, being in that office with the team, building, failing, figuring something out, succeeding. It, that, it's the journey is what it's all about. So enjoy it. It's a wild ride. Um, and don't be too hard on yourself. No, that's a great, all, all, all great piece of advice. Um, I love that. Enjoy the journey. It's not just, um, about the destination. If you do want to start a company, uh, so, um, uh, and also, yeah, don't get too low when things go wrong and probably don't get too high when things go great. Um, kind of always remain kind of even keeled if you can. Brett, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Mike, thanks for having me. Uh, I had a lot of fun and you have great questions and, uh, grateful you had me. And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Brett. I hope you all enjoyed listening to that one. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hold up. 